Do you know 19 million living veterans served in at least one of the previous wars? Almost a million in the Korean War, 5.9 million in the Vietnam War, 7.8 million in the Gulf War, and 16 million in World War II, with approximately 240,000 of those veterans still alive today. So Memorial Day is about so much more than just hot dogs and hamburgers, a parade in May, and a day off of work. Instead, it was established to honor those who died in American wars. And did you know Memorial Day was originally called Decoration Day? Because it originated during the Civil War when people in the community would place flowers on graves of those who had died in battle. But Memorial Day is not to be confused with Veterans Day. I made that mistake once in my life, celebrating Memorial Day with a decorated officer who served in World War II. I was so honored just to be sitting with him, talking with him, and wanted to hear so much more about his life and his experiences. So I started off the conversation by saying, in light of it being Memorial Day, I want to thank you for your faithful service to our country. And he responded with this big smile on his face, saying, I appreciate that very much, but I'm still alive. So you're going to have to thank me again on Veterans Day. Because Memorial Day is when we celebrate all those who died to provide our freedom. Veterans Day is when we honor all veterans, including those who are still alive. Now, why am I telling you all of this? Well, first of all, because history is important. Support of what makes us who we are as a country is the service and the sacrifice of our veterans. Because our freedom wasn't free. Second, we don't want to forget that. So remembering enables us to flourish because it results in thankfulness and appreciation for all the privileges that we have as Americans and results in us living in a way that honors their sacrifice. So we don't remember just to remember. We remember because it impacts the way in which we live. Now, if that's true for us as Americans, then how much more should that be true of us as Christians? I mean, Christians have been granted freedom from things far greater than any foreign power. We've been granted freedom from sin and from death. But that freedom wasn't free, was it? Instead, it came at the unbelievable sacrifice of God's only beloved Son. 1 Peter 1.19 says, We're not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold. We're redeemed with the precious blood of Christ. So God wants us and God commands us to remember, not just once a year, but constantly. And why does he want that? Because remembering is vital to us having, having a thriving relationship with the Lord and with the people of God. So that's where we're going this morning. If you would, go ahead and open your Bibles with me to Exodus chapter 12, verse 43. 
Exodus 12, 43 is on page 53. Also want to encourage you to grab my outline titled my sermon this morning, Resolved to Remember. Now since we're jumping back into Exodus, let me quickly remind you of where we're at in the book. Chapter 1 started out with Israel enslaved in Egypt. They were oppressed and they were afflicted and yet God's promises were unstoppable. And the people multiplied. Chapters 2 to 4, God raises up a deliverer. That's Moses who's protected and prepared to free God's people from slavery and to take them all the way to the promised land. But in chapters 5 to 7, things go from bad to worse because Pharaoh rejects God's commands and makes things worse for the Israelites. So what does God do? Well, he responds. And he responds by sending nine plagues on Egypt. Why does he do that? So that all the world might know that God is God and there is no other. But Pharaoh still won't let God's people go. So he sends a tenth plague, the death of the firstborn son. And the only way to be delivered from death is through the substitutionary sacrifice of a Passover lamb whose blood is placed on the doorpost and the lintel so that the death angel passes over and the people of God are saved. All of that is taking place. But before we're given the details of this massive exodus of 600,000 men, approximately 2 million people, the narrative pauses for just a moment. And Moses instructs us on how this salvation must be remembered. And it's to be remembered through three different means, right? And you see them right on your outline. The Passover meal, the feast of unleavened bread, and the consecration of of the firstborn. So if you would follow along as I read Exodus chapter 12, verses 43 to 51. And the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, this is the statute of the Passover. No foreigner shall eat of it, but every slave that is bought for money may eat of it after you have circumcised him. No foreigner or hired worker may eat of it. It shall be eaten in one house. You shall not take any of the flesh outside the house, and you shall not break any of the bones. All the congregation of Israel shall keep it. If a stranger shall sojourn with you and would keep the Passover to the Lord, let all his males be circumcised. Then he may come near and keep it. He shall be as a native of the land. But no uncircumcised person shall eat of it. There shall be one law for the native and for the stranger who sojourns among you. All the people of Israel did just as the Lord commanded Moses and Aaron. And on that day, that very day, the Lord brought the people of Israel out of the land of Egypt by their hosts. First thing we need to notice, this meal isn't for everyone. Right? It's only for the covenant community. Verse 43 is super clear. No foreigner shall eat it. Verse 45 says no foreigner or hired worker shall eat of it. Now a foreigner was a non-Israelite who dwells with the people of God. A hired worker was a non-Israelite temporarily doing work among them. These would be folks on work visas living among the Israelites but without any of the rights or privileges. And this shouldn't surprise us. Exodus 12:38 says a mixed multitude went up with the Israelites. But regardless of who they are, they cannot partake of the Passover meal. 
because they have not yet been circumcised. Verse 48. So they haven't made Israel's God their God. Now that doesn't mean they can't do so. In fact, it's one of the things I, most, I find most encouraging about the Bible because God has always desired to have a people from every nation, tribe, kindred, and people group to worship him. Circumcision goes all the way back to God's covenant with Abraham in Genesis 17. You don't have to turn there, but verse 10, God says, this is my covenant with you. You shall keep it between me and you and your offspring. So generation after generation, every male among you shall be circumcised. Verse 13 clarifies, both he who is born in your house and he who is bought with your money shall be circumcised. So shall my covenant be as an everlasting covenant. So circumcision was a sign demonstrating that you were truly part of the people of God. But non-Israelites were totally welcome to participate. They just had to be circumcised. And when they were circumcised, they were essentially declaring that Israel's God is now my God. So foreigners and hired workers were more than welcome to come and eat the Passover meal provided they were circumcised, provided they were truly worshiping Yahweh. That's why verse 48 says, if a stranger shall sojourn with you and keep the Passover, let all his males be circumcised, then he may come near and keep it. He shall be as a native of the land, but no uncircumcised person shall eat of it. So obviously, super particular restrictions. But what's the point? Well, it's to show that God's salvation is only for the people of God. Remember, that's what the Passover meal is all about, God's salvation, that he saved the people out of slavery, out of the house of bondage. How did he do that? By the blood of the lamb. So if foreigners, slaves, or hired workers are not worshiping this God, the God of the Exodus, then they have nothing to celebrate because Israel's God is not yet their God. But that's not because it's not available to them. So even in the Old Testament, God provides a way for outsiders to become part of his family. But it's always by grace alone, through faith alone, trusting, believing, in resting in what God has already done, the God of salvation. And therefore, circumcision was always meant to be an outward sign of an inward conviction, so a demonstration and a declaration that you too are a part of God's covenant community. So clearly, a meal for the covenant community, but also be a meal to be shared. Verse 46 says, the Passover meal shall be eaten in one house, so you shall not take any of the flesh outside the house, you shall not break any of the bones. Again, very particular, but look at verse 47. All the congregation of Israel shall keep it. So everybody needs to do this. And everybody did do this. The entire people of God, the covenant community, all 600,000 men, 2 million total people. In fact, in Exodus 12:3, God says, tell all the congregation of Israel that on the 10th day of this month, every man shall take a lamb according to their father's house. So they all picked a lamb 
on the same day, verse 3. And they all slaughtered that lamb at the same time, verse 6. And they all put the blood in the same place, verse 7. And they all went into their homes. And they all had the same meal, verse 8. And all assembled for the same worship service, verse 16. I've got one point. The Passover meal was never intended to be an individual celebration, but always intended to be a family celebration involving all of God's people. And the reason is because they were all rescued together through the same means. Verse 50 says, all the people of Israel did just as the Lord commanded. And on that very day, the Lord brought all the people of Israel out of the land of Egypt. So a meal for the covenant community, a meal to be shared, and now see a meal to be explained. So please understand, God's design was never for this to become some thoughtless ritual done by force of habit. No, he, he wanted the purpose to be super clear. You know, I remember when we first moved to Windsor. Gabby was 11, Sam was 10, Julie was 8, Jay was 7 years old. My kids were super short at that time. I was still taller than all of them. Right now, they're like all super tall. But I remember Memorial Day. I remember hearing the parade coming down Broad Street. So I grabbed my kids and I, I started heading down to the town green, not to just experience the parade, but to see the whole town gathered together to honor those who had died to secure our freedom. But some of my kids had no idea what was going on at all. So what did I do? I started explaining to them the meaning of Memorial Day just like I did in my introduction. Because I, I didn't want my kids to be confused about the meaning of this wonderful holiday. Now just look at verse 24. You shall observe this rite as a statute for you and for your sons forever. Verse 26, and when your children say, what do you mean by this service? You shall say, it's the sacrifice of the Lord's Passover. For he passed over the houses of the people of Israel in Egypt when he struck down the Egyptians, but he spared our houses. So this is something that needs to be understood. Dad, why do we take a perfect spotless lamb Every single year. Why, why do we kill it and eat it along with the bitter herbs and the unleavened bread? Kids, we're doing this so that we never, ever forget how we were so graciously saved from God's wrath because when God saw the blood, he passed over our house. So the lamb dies so that we don't have to die. The lamb is sacrificed as our substitute so he dies in our place so that we can live. Now make the connection. 
Because the Passover lamb obviously points forward to the Lord Jesus. But so does the meal. Just before the crucifixion, Jesus celebrated the Passover with his disciples. But as he did, he explained that the salvation God accomplished through the Exodus in the past points forward to an even greater salvation accomplished through this death, burial, and resurrection. Luke twenty two nineteen, 19, Jesus took the bread. And when he broke it, he gave it to his disciples saying, this is my body which is given to you. Do this in remembrance of me. And with the cup, he said, this cup which is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. So Jesus points to himself as the fulfillment of the Passover, that he's the Lamb of God sacrificed as a substitute so that sinners might be saved. His body broken, his blood shed so that whoever applies his blood to the doorpost and lintel of his heart by faith will be saved. Meaning God's wrath will pass over him. That's what we must remember when we celebrate the Lord's Supper. And just like God wanted his Old Testament people to remember his salvation through the Passover meal, he wants the new covenant people of God to remember his ultimate salvation through the Lord's Supper. Remember what he said to his disciples, do this in remembrance of me. So just like God wanted the Passover meal to be celebrated in a very particular way by a very particular people, he wants the same for us. So first of all, it's only for the covenant community, which means only Christians should celebrate the Lord's Supper, which by the way is why I give very specific instructions every single time that we celebrate the Lord's Supper you haven't yet placed your faith in Christ, then please let the bread and the cup pass you by because there's no power in either the bread or the cup to save you. Instead, they're pointers to the Lord Jesus and the salvation that is only available in him. So the Lord's table is not for everyone, just like the Passover wasn't for everyone. Now, does that mean people aren't invited to come? Of course they are. But you have to put your faith in Christ. So it's not something that you're born into or you work to earn. No, it's by faith alone in Christ alone. So you have to agree with God that you're a sinner in desperate need of a Savior and trust in Christ alone for the forgiveness of your sins and the hope of eternal life. That's the only way to become a part of the covenant community. And as a result, you should be baptized That's the sign that you've truly identified yourself with Christ in his death, his burial, and his resurrection. The outward sign of an inward change that you've really died to sin and you've really been raised to walk in newness of life. So the church has two ordinances. Baptism and the Lord's Supper. Baptism, the initiating ordinance, and the Lord's Supper, the ongoing ordinance. So first you're baptized... Then the ongoing celebration of your salvation by participating in the Lord's Supper. Last connection. Do you see how all of these details assume the importance of a local church? I mean, let me ask you this question. 
When should you celebrate the Lord's Supper? Monday afternoon? After work? Happy hour? <laughs> Any time that you have bread and wine? Hey, we got bread and wine. Lord's Supper. No. Sunday morning. Corporate gathering. When we worship the Lord together. The Lord's Supper is a covenant community event, which means we're all together, which means that even though there are a million things that we could be doing on a Sunday morning, we're choosing one thing above all the rest, and that's corporate worship. Dear believer, I know that COVID has been tricky. But my encouragement to you is to not neglect the importance of Sunday morning worship. So don't miss it just because you're tired. Like, I think live stream is absolutely wonderful, but that shouldn't make coming to church an option from sitting in your bed and watching the television. Don't misunderstand me. There's good reasons to be in your bed. If you're sick, you're not doing well, stay home. No tensions. We should not be optional on that if we're feeling well. Don't miss the corporate gathering of the saints because you're tired. Don't miss the corporate gathering of the saints for sports, for lesser things. Just because our current culture puts every stinking football game for our seventh graders on Sunday morning. Oh, that's too bad. Johnny's going to miss the game. Why? Because we value the corporate gathering of the saints where we worship our God together with the people of God, not to be compromised. Don't miss the corporate gathering of the saints to go on vacation. Are you saying, Pastor Steve, we can never go on vacation? No, that's not what I'm saying. I'm saying when you go on vacation, don't neglect the gathering of the saints. You're in Alaska. Great. Have a great time. Sunday morning, gather with the saints to worship God. Meaning don't travel on Sunday morning. Stay where you are. Hunker down. Gather with the saints. The corporate gathering of the saints is that important. Now, am I just saying all of this because I'm a pastor? No, this has... Nothing to do with me at all. This is about God. This is about him and his commands that we gather together in order to remember what he has done in our lives. To worship him. But it's also for our own personal flourishing. You see, God knows what he's doing. And he knows that we are a forgetful people. So we need to gather in order to remember. So he put in place this system of remembrance so that our hearts might stay in tune with his heart. That we might always remember what Christ has done for our salvation. And as a result, live for the fame of his name. Number one. The Passover meal. Number two, the Feast of Unleavened Bread. 
Follow along as I read Exodus 13. We're going to skip verses 1 and 2. We'll come back to that. Let's read verses 3 to 10. Exodus 13, 3 to 10. And Moses said to the people, remember this day in which you came out from Egypt, out of the house of slavery, for by a strong hand the Lord brought you out from this place. No leavened bread shall be eaten. Today in the month of Abib you are going out, and when the Lord brings you into the land of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, which he swore to your fathers to give you a land flowing with milk and honey, you shall keep this service in this month. Seven days you shall eat unleavened bread, and on the seventh day there shall be a feast to the Lord. Unleavened bread shall be eaten for seven days. No leavened bread shall be seen with you, and no leaven shall be seen with you in all your territory. You shall tell your son on that day it is because of what the Lord did for me when I came out of Egypt. And it shall be to you as a sign on your hand and as a memorial between your eyes that the law of the Lord may be in your mouth. For with a strong hand the Lord brought you out of Egypt. You shall therefore keep this statute at its appointed time from year to year. So obviously, right, the main point is that God is a huge fan of gluten-free diets. No. Right, this is just another helpful Reminder, another way to remember God's glorious gift of salvation through the Feast of Unleavened Bread. So first the Passover, then immediately after the next day, the Feast of Unleavened Bread that lasts for seven days straight. The main point is obviously that there's no leavened bread. Verse 3, no leavened bread shall be eaten. Verse 6, seven days you shall eat unleavened bread. On the seventh day, there shall be a feast to the Lord. Unleavened bread shall be eaten for seven days. No leavened bread shall be seen with you. No leaven shall be seen with you in all your territory. Okay. We got it, right? The dead horse is called and he said, stop beating me. We got it. But understand, this is done every single year. Over and over and over again. Number two, a feast to be repeated annually, but purposely, specifically, so that you might remember God's glorious salvation. Verse three, remember this day in which you came out from Egypt, out of the house of slavery, for by a strong hand the Lord brought you out. Verse 10, you shall therefore keep this statute at its appointed time from year to year. Feast to be repeated annually. So they never forget. They always remember God's glorious salvation. And just like the Passover, it's see a feast to be explained. Verse 8, you shall tell your son on that day. It's because of what the Lord did for me when I came out of Egypt. And it shall be to you as a sign on your hand and as a memorial between your eyes, so that the law of the Lord may be in your mouth. For with a strong hand, the Lord has brought you out of Egypt the, the points are crystal clear, aren't they? It's a feast with no leaven, it's a feast to be repeated annually, and it's a feast to be explained. But what's not all that clear is exactly how this feast reminds them, in all of its details, of what God did. I mean, what's the connection between not eating leaven and what God did to save them? There's actually two things. 
Number one, on a purely physical level, when the Israelites left Egypt, they had to go out in such a hurry that they didn't have time to let the bread rise. The bread rise. Exodus 12, 34 says, so the people took their dough before it was leavened. So they literally ate the Passover with their Nikes on and left immediately. No time to pack, no time to change, no time to let the bread rise. Instead, you're up and gone. So eating the unleavened bread for seven days reminds them experientially of that entire event. But number two, on a spiritual level, it reminds them of their desperate need to have a break between their old lives in Egypt and their new life in the promised land. John McKay, so helpful here. He says, unleavened bread was a symbol of discontinuity. So the command to banish leaven from their homes was a gesture that symbolized leaving behind all Egyptian influences that might work their way in and out of their lives and corrupt them. And according to the Lord, the corruption of Egypt was to have no place among the people of God, whom he just delivered out of Egypt. Isn't that helpful? The Feast of Unleavened Bread is about so much more than just speed and timing. Instead, it's a God-given reminder that they've, got to, that, that they've got to get all of Egypt and all of its influences out of their sinful, selfish hearts. Which, by the way, we're going to see in spades when they get on the other side of the Red Sea. Why do I say that? Because it's only three days after this whole exodus that they start grumbling. Did you bring us out here, Moses, to die? At least back in Egypt, we had, we had good food, right? We had, we had big steaks. We had lots of water. We had creature comforts. You see, before they ever get there, God is saying to them, not so with my people. I will take you physically out of Egypt, but you've got to get Egypt spiritually out of you. I would suggest the application is the same for us this morning, isn't it? I mean, when we come to Christ, we've got to leave the ways of the world behind, the wickedness of our old selves. Do you know how Paul highlights this? 1 Corinthians 5, 7. Listen to this. He says, cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Therefore, let us celebrate the festival, not with the old leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. Super helpful for you to recognize the context of those verses because the Corinthian church was tolerating horrific, flagrant Sin. A man was sleeping with his stepmother that wasn't even tolerated among unbelievers. So Paul's saying this leaven of sin has got to go. Because coming to faith in Christ requires a decisive break with sin. The old is gone, the new has come, and never should the two be mingled. Do you see how important it is to get Egypt out of your own hearts and your own lives? 
Because Christianity is not a Jesus plus something relationship. Meaning we can't just have Jesus plus the world. Or or, or Jesus plus an inappropriate relationship. Or, Or Jesus plus power, or Jesus plus position, or Jesus plus prestige, or Jesus plus whatever the idol is in your own heart. It's got to be one or the other. But now just pause for a moment and recognize how good and glorious this is for our own flourishing. Because nothing weighs us down more in our relationship with Christ than the sin that we're not repenting of. In fact, let me just ask, how do you feel when you're doing something you know is not pleasing to the Lord? How does that make you feel? It makes you feel horrible, doesn't it? Of course it does. Psalm 32 says, when I kept silent in my sin, my bones wasted away. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me until my strength dried up as by the heat of summer. You can hear it. Sin is like a wet blanket over a vibrant soul. And you feel incredibly guilty. To such an extent that your joy is muted, your Bible reading is dull, and your prayers to God feel wrong and they feel wicked. But of course that would happen when we tolerate the leaven of sin in our lives. God is not going to allow you to feel good about yourself when you're in unrepented sin. As Christians, we're called to fight a lifelong battle against sin. But isn't it helpful to see, even in this passage, that this fight against sin isn't in order to be saved. Instead, it's because we are saved. So we're not doing this to earn our own salvation. Instead, it's part of what's bound up in remembering all that God has done for us in our salvation. So we're not earning anything. Instead, we're just responding to the good work that he's already done. Verse 8, when the sons and daughters ask their parents, why the feast? How should they respond? It's because of what the Lord did for me when I came out of Egypt. It shall be as a sign on your hand and a memorial between your eyes. Why? What's the purpose? So that the law of the Lord may be in your mouth. Don't you see? We're remembering what God has already done. Past tense, so that it might impact the way that we live now and in the future for his glory. Why am I pressing on this point? Well, because it seems to be a hard thing for us to balance as the people of God. Number one, that our salvation is all of grace, but also number two, that our salvation must necessarily result in good works. Like putting real sin to death, like cleansing out the old leaven of malice and evil so that we can be filled with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. And yet, all of that is still a work of God's 
grace. Before I move on, let me just ask, what old leaven of sin is still in your life that needs to be cleansed, that needs to be cleaned out? What bread of righteousness needs to be cultivated? And do you realize that this ongoing process of putting sin to death and walking in righteousness by God's grace for God's glory is where pure joy is found, where you thrive and where you flourish in the Christian life. So number one, the Passover meal. Number two, the feast of unleavened bread. Now number three, the consecration of the firstborn. Follow along as I read Exodus 13. I'll start in verses one and two. Then we'll jump and read verses 11 to 16. So Exodus chapter 13, verse one. The Lord said to Moses, consecrate to me all the firstborn, whatever is the first to open the wound among the people of Israel. Both man and beast is mine. Verse 11, when the Lord brings you out, brings you into the land of the Canaanites as he swore to you and your fathers and shall give it to you, you shall set apart to the Lord all that first opens the womb. All the firstborn of your animals that are males shall be the Lord's. Every firstborn of a donkey you shall redeem with a lamb, or if you will not redeem it, you shall break its neck. Every firstborn of man among your sons you shall redeem. And when in time your son asks you, what does this mean? You shall say to him, by a strong hand, the Lord brought us out of Egypt from the house of slavery. For when Pharaoh stubbornly refused to let us go, the Lord killed all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both the firstborn of man and the firstborn of animals. Therefore, I sacrifice to the Lord all the males that first opened the wound, but all the firstborn of my sons I redeem. It shall be as a mark on your hand or frontlets before your eyes, for by a strong hand the Lord brought us out of Egypt. So God commands Israel to give him their firstborn animals and their firstborn sons. Verse 1 says, consecrate them to me, which simply means set them apart, right? Set them apart specifically for the Lord. And this setting apart is saying in essence that God, we totally understand the firstborn is yours. He belongs to you. How exactly were the firstborn set apart? Well, in the case of animals, it meant sacrificing them. The one exception, of course, was the donkey because donkeys were ceremonially unclean. So they couldn't be sacrificed. Instead, their neck was broken or a lamb was sacrificed. So a lamb could be sacrificed as a substitute dying in the place of a donkey. But either way, all the firstborn male animals were set apart. They were given to God. What about the firstborn sons? How were they set apart? Well, they were redeemed. Verse 13 says, Every firstborn among your sons shall be redeemed. Which means... You had to pay a price in order to buy them back. 
Now, Exodus doesn't tell us the price specifically. Numbers 18 fills us in on that. Verse 15 says, Everything that opens the womb of all flesh, whether beast or man, which the Israelites offer to the Lord, shall be the Lord's. Nevertheless, the firstborn of man you shall redeem, and the firstborn of unclean animals like donkeys you shall also redeem. Verse 16, And their redemption price, here it is, at a month old, shall be five shekels of silver. So the redemption price is five shekels of silver. Which means when the Israelites had a firstborn son, they would take him up to the priest and they would pay five shekels of silver. And when they paid, they were essentially saying, we totally understand. We totally recognize that this firstborn son's is the Lord's. He ultimately belongs to God. By the way, this is exactly what Joseph and Mary did with Jesus, Luke 2.22. They brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law, every male who first opens the womb is to be consecrated to the Lord. Since Jesus was their firstborn son, he ultimately belonged to God. All right. That's all great and good. But what exactly is God doing? I mean, why set apart the firstborn son? Well, number one, because it reminds them with every single firstborn, both both son and animal, how God saved their firstborn during the Passover. So it's a constant, never-ending reminder. There's 600,000 men. There's about 2 million people. How often do you think a firstborn is born? All the time. Constant, never-ending reminder. Every single time a son is born. That God provided a lamb as a substitute to redeem them, to buy them back. So that they didn't have to die. And can you imagine how personal that would become? Cameron and Anna are having a little baby boy. Prior to the birth of that son, you're just sacrificing to the Lord. Hey, this is what we need to do. We need to be right with the Lord. Yep, yep. Hey, they're having a baby. They need to pay five shekels of silver. Yeah, that's all great and good. Until your baby boy is born. And you think long and hard about the reality that apart from God's grace, this son, my son, should die. It would become very personal. What an impact on your thinking. Just remembering that apart from God's grace, my son would be dead. So every time, every single time, God's people set apart their firstborn, they were remembering God's glorious salvation because it's a constant reminder of the cost, isn't it? Because a price had to be paid. Blood had to be shed. And as a result, the firstborn belongs to God. So he doesn't really belong to his parents. He doesn't even really belong to himself because he's been bought with a price. 
So he belongs to God. Now I hope you're already seeing how this applies. Because the clear implication is that we wholeheartedly belong to the Lord. So everything we are and everything we have isn't really ours. It's his. And it's his because he made us. And it's his because he redeemed us. So the truth is God owns us twice over. Creation and redemption. And as a result, everything we are and everything we have belongs to him. 1 Corinthians 6, 19, Paul says we are not our own. Why are we not our own? Because we were bought with a price. Therefore, as a result, we are called and commanded to glorify the Lord in everything that we do. Jesus paid it all. All to him we owe. Sin had left a crimson stain. He washed us white as snow. So as we close, how should we respond to all of these glorious reminders? Well, I think we should think long and hard about giving to God the first of all we are and all that we have. Starting with our lives. If you're here this morning and you have not yet repented of your sin, you have not yet pleaded for mercy and not yet given yourself wholeheartedly to the Lord, that has to be where you start. Because offering him anything less would be an insult to his substitutionary sacrifice for your salvation and would demonstrate so clearly that you don't really understand all that he's done and all that he's offering to you your eternal well-being. Where should you start? Repent. Believe. Be saved. And lose your life for Christ's sake so that you may gain it for all eternity. And for you, dear believer, my encouragement is to start regularly Offering to God the firsts of all that you are and all that you have. Here's a good place to start. Set apart the first day of the week by coming to corporate worship. Not because you feel guilty. Not because you have to do it. Not because I'm somehow looking at attendance. But because it's the joy of your heart. And be very clear in your mind and in your heart when you do it. When I come on Sunday morning for corporate worship and I offer the first of my week to the Lord, what I'm doing is saying to the Lord, this whole week belongs to you. Not just this morning. This week belongs to you. Then set apart the first day of every single day to be in God's word, to be meditating, to be praying, to be seeking the Lord, to be communing with him in personal fellowship and be clear when you do it. Not a duty, but a delight. He's your greatest treasure every single hour of the day. Not just the first hour, every hour. Set, set aside, set apart the first of your income. 
to give to God's work here at Proclamation. And be clear, crystal clear, when you do it, all my money belongs to him. Do you hear what I'm saying? Consecrate yourself to the Lord in all that you do. And I promise you, you will not be disappointed because when we remember all that God has done for us and live dedicated to remembering, our relationship with him is going to flourish and our joy in Christ will be pressed down, filled up, and overflowing in our lives. May we, individually and as the people of God, be resolved to remember God's glorious salvation for our souls. Jesus paid it all. All to him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain. He washed it white as snow. Resolved to remember some things in life we should never, ever forget. Allow me to pray to that end. Father, we can already feel it. Just the inclination of our heart. Boy, that's a good word. So grateful for the word of God. But we're going to walk out these doors and we're going to be consumed with every other stinking thing in life. Father, we're grateful for life. We're grateful for your good gifts. You have abundantly blessed us. But Father, I pray that we would never forget. I pray that we would always remember. I pray that we would see all of life through the lens of Christ's finished work on the cross, of the glorious salvation that you have provided for us so that when we walk out these doors, all that we do might be done for the glory of God. And Father, help us to be diligent on a daily basis to consecrate ourselves to the Lord, to set aside the first of who we are and all that we have, that we would recognize it's all from your hand, your good and gracious gift to us. Father, help us to be a people who are resolved to remember, to never forget, and to live in such a way that our lives might be a constant reminder, a constant declaration that we recognize it's all from your hand so that your name might be glorified and praised. By your grace, do that good work in our lives, we pray. In Jesus' precious name. Amen.